Drumming. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, my guest is drummer Brian Doherty. Brian is best known as the drummer for groups like They Might Be Giants, RCA recording artists of The Silos, XTC, Freedy Johnston, Ben Folds, and many more. In the early 90s, Brian was recruited by They Might Be Giants, and for three years, Brian and They Might Be Giants recorded albums, wrote songs, and relentlessly toured the world. In 2001, Brian went back to graduate school and became a New York City school teacher as part of the New York City Teaching Fellows Program. As well as teaching, he remains professionally active as a drummer, recording in the studio and performing on a variety of gigs that includes Broadway shows in New York. On Broadway, Brian has performed in productions of Rent, Hairspray, The Times They Are Changing, Waitress, and Little Shop of Horrors. If you're interested in supporting what Zach and I are doing here on the podcast, you can join our Patreon page. And for as little as $1 a month, you can have full access to all the educational material on that page that has been provided by past guests. New for this year, 2024, we have a new monthly video series where Zach and I get together. We talk about the interviews of that month, some behind-the-scenes things, some extra content that we're doing on a monthly basis. We're very excited about this new video series and just a little bit more content for all our supporters we have supporters on there contributing up to $5, 10 $25. Become part of the community. We really appreciate it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation on our website at www.workingdrummer.net. There's a PayPal button. You can find all the information there. very excited for you guys to hear this conversation with Brian. There's a wide range of topics that we cover. Uh, first of all, I love the fact that we had a listener bring Brian to my attention, and Brian was more than gracious to take some time to speak with us. We go through the arc of his career, some of the amazing things that he was able to do, record and tour with some amazing groups, and now this time of his life working as a public school teacher and yet staying professionally active as a drummer in all sorts of things. We get into that and so much more. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Brian Doherty. Yeah, I'm showing you the vinyl, the fold-out vinyl of John Henry, the They Might Be Giants record that, uh, for the, well, first of all, man, thanks for doing this. Good to see you. Absolutely. Good to meet you. Um, it's my pleasure, by the way. So this is a trip. I, I, uh, I realize how uh, unorganized I am uh, that you sent me an email and said, hey, uh, our are you still or something, you know, along the lines of, are, are you still interested in doing an interview? And I'm like, 
who, who, who is this? And I look and I'm like, oh man, I, I like reach, I reached out to you like <laughs> almost a year ago. And I'm yeah. like, what, what an asshole I am. <laughs> no, not, not at all, man. I've, I've, uh, I looked at all of your podcasts and I realized how, how busy you guys are. And, uh, I just figured you're probably spinning a lot of plates, right? But I can say that um, what connected the the two of us was from a listener, Paul Meeker. Do you know yes. Paul Meeker? I don't. I don't. He's a, a, a listener and, and a, a fan. And one, one day I just received an email from him and he said, boy, you'd be good for this podcast. And um uh, and in all, in all honesty, I said, you know, that's that's really, really nice of you. However, it would sound way better coming from you if you fire them in an email instead of me, you know, and uh, and then he did. So he did. There, there you go. Yeah, he did. And, and and that's another thing that's been a benefit of having done this for many years is that uh, we have people approaching us. We have listeners saying, hey, do you know so and so? Do you know this person? And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I have a, a, a great listener uh, who's become a friend who's like, hey, I met Gary Novak the other day at a hang and I mentioned your show and I, I talked him hopefully into into connecting with you. And I'm like, oh, well, well th thank you. Thank you. It's so fantastic. Much. Yeah. Well, that's the way it's going to work. Right. That's what, that's going to going to be going to be the way it works with networking and so on. Right. Ex extending the community. Right, 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 right. Uh, so uh, I, since this is an audio only podcast, I'd say I um, was showing the They Might Be Giants vinyl record of of John Henry that you played on. Um, I, I just want to, we'll get into that. We'll get into the, your time with that band. Uh, my, my wife was a huge fan growing up. Um, and when we had kids, I got two sons, uh, 18 and 21 now. And when they were coming up, um, we wanted to expose them to music, uh, good music, not children's music, not kid pop bullshit, right. but stuff that was great music, but also age, not age appropriate, but uh, safe, if you will, and fun. Yeah. And so Beatles were there. Um, 1950s rock and roll was there. And my wife was like, oh, they might be giants and they came out with their kids record and the DVD yeah. and stuff like that. So for them, they were like, they just digested all of it. So this is their wreck. I don't know which son bought it, but we would go record shopping mm -hmm. and they would spend their money on records and they'd come home with Billy Joel glass houses and oh, great. And, um, uh, of Montreal, um, they might be giants and, mm -hmm. So my point of all that is they'd be listening to stuff and I was less familiar. I knew some of this, some of the stuff I was less familiar, but when they put this record on of, of many, of course I'm tuning in and I'm like, Oh man, that's, that's really good. Yeah. Like that, that, and that's compared to like Apollo 13, that's real drumming. Yeah. And what's that guy doing, man? That that snare sound is popping. It's great. Yeah. It's solid. And there's some intricate shit going on there. Yeah. Yeah, there's um there what's well, part of the genius of They Might Be Giants. They they are uh what I what I like to consider a 
kind of like a vapor. They are everywhere and they're si they're silent. They they creep around and uh, and they're really like in every pocket of or or many many genres and pockets of the music industry. And they pop up everywhere: movie soundtracks, kid shows, television shows, uh, television jingles, and so on and so forth. But um, but yeah, that's that's they and they and they are very attentive when it comes to uh music performance so they're in i'm i'm glad that you appreciate that yeah in in uh 2022 for christmas my wife bought tickets for us to see them when they were coming to nashville just last year and um they were singing along to every song and knew all the words and i'm just walking around the place and uh you know watching the band and and like observing all this stuff and i'm like this is super cool and there were some performance things uh, that they were doing that I know they were doing when you were with them as well, uh, that I'm like, this is, this is genius. Yeah. Like I got some people that I work with that need to see this. Yeah. You know, this is fun. They de definitely put together, they found, um, you know, through the use of their horn section and, uh, and their other musicians. I mean, and, and by now the, I think the band that they're playing with now, they have, have, has been together for several years. So, Okay. They they are definitely a tight touring unit, and um, but they they have some improvisational elements, and they you know, and I I think they really know how to sequence their songs live, mm -hmm. uh, in in a way that uh, that that that's enjoyable to everyone. Yeah, yeah. And um, I saw them here. I live in Westchester, New York, and they headlined our local music festival, the Pleasantville Music Festival, this past July. And they were fantastic. They're, they were great. I was kind of, to, to be honest with you, I was kind of expecting, you know, kind of a more uh, watered down, maybe more tired version of, of the band that I was in. But they were completely on their game. That's 100, great. 110%. And they, yeah. and they brought it. They did not phone in one element of the show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when we, when we get to that, which, which won't be too long here, uh, I want to, I want to back up a little bit, but when we get to that, I'd love to talk about the improvisational thing and kind of one of the performance things that they did with you. And, uh, it's yeah. really, cool, really cool. Um, Hey, you mentioned, uh, where you live and, uh, did you, did you grow up where you're living now or I know around the area, but yeah, yeah, no, I'm originally from the Northeast. I grew up in Northeast New Jersey in a town called Randolph, and uh, it's in um, more of a suburban area of New Jersey, not along the industrial co corridor around Newark Airport that everybody seems to associate New Jersey with, kind of like um, that area is kind of, if anybody's seen the, the opening sequence of The Sopranos, that's that that's the industrial area of New Jersey. But no, I, I grew up in a more rural setting and um, about an hour, an hour and 10 minutes outside of New York City. Okay. And um, and then when I was 18, I, I moved into New York City because I, I went to college in New York. Yeah. And that's that's it. I've been here ever since. And Westchester, New York is a suburb north of New York City. So it's a it's a commuter sub suburb. We, we have a, a train that goes right into Grand Central Station. And there there are nice little communities up here. And we're close enough, but we're far enough away that that it's nice and quiet. I wonder um, how where you live has influenced your interest in music or uh, the, the music you got into eventually started working professionally at. 
That's a that's a great question. And I think of that, I think of that sometimes like the what ifs. Like what if I lived in the Midwest or what if I grew up in Los Angeles or what if I grew up in Florida? Mm-hmm. But um uh it no, I definitely so so one thing that really influenced me growing up as a kid is that we had great live like a live club scene where you, you know i and i'm i'm in my early 60s so i'm a oh, child of great, this uh, thank thank you yeah. i'm a child of the 70s and you know bars and clubs had bands five six nights a week mm-hmm. and um we had great live music so it was and being that we were you know a stone's throw from New York City. A lot of the bands that came through my town were performing as a stopover, you know, to fill fill in the gaps, you know. So we had we had a club called the Showplace in Dover, New Jersey, that I saw so many bands at. It was crazy, but um, bands like the Ramones would come through. The Plasmatics would play there a lot. Television would play there. Blondie played there. I didn't see all these bands, but I saw many of them. Uh, the Talking Heads had played there. Yeah, there were great local bands like the Good Rats would would almost have a residency there. Blackfoot, uh, th- that was one of their clubs because oh, wow. they're originally from Florida, but when they moved to New York, yeah. they actually settled in Dover, New Jersey, which is my uh, right right next to my town. Yeah, so we had great bands. We had amazing bands coming through these clubs, and we had a great theater um, about thirty minutes away in Pasea called the Capitol Theater. And if anybody's interested, you could the their archive of shows is on YouTube, and it's fa- fantastic. Like, just so many bands. I mean, the Grateful Dead would do a week at a time at the Capitol, um, but every band that you could possibly imagine, from Bruce Springsteen to, like I said, the Dead. I saw some of the early tours. I saw like um, I, I think I saw Meatloaf on his first tour there. Good Lord. I saw Molly Hatchet on their for, for first tour there. I saw 38 Special really early on. Uh, it was a huge Southern Rock venue as well. So, And I was and a big I, Southern Rock fan. Yeah. Right. I heard that. And and uh, and, it's, and you were like, I, I might be one of the only people I know that's been influenced by Southern Rock based on where you grew up. <laughs> yeah. It's... Um, it's actually a crazy phenomenon. You, you wouldn't know it, but Northern New Jersey was a huge Southern rock haven. Mm-hmm. It was like, the, uh, you know, Charlie Daniels band, um, uh, Marshall Tucker, yeah. every, you know, the outlaws, Allman brothers. And we would see all of these bands and they would all come through the Capitol theater in Passaic. Yeah. So yeah. that was, uh, so that, you know, to answer your question, that was a long way of answering uh, your, your your question that was just like an influence. I I I consider I still consider myself like a big music fan, uh, as opposed to like uh, somebody who's in the business. Uh, I'm a I'm a fan, and I can still kind of let everything else go and still be a fan. You know, kind of like get get into the song and get which maybe we could talk about later because I think it's interesting. Um, sometimes when I talk to people about songs that I really enjoy, and they're like, "What?" It's like I would I would have never thought that you like this genre of music or this song, but I, I really enjoy uh, different genres regardless of the drumming, I, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right. Okay. I mean, so, yeah. so anyway, so yeah, this Southern rock was a huge influence on me. So I saw, saw all those bands and um, 
And that that did have a big impact. I, I saw great drummers. Uh, I forget the guy's name, but the, the the original drummer of Molly Hatchet, fantastic drummer. I, th I think he passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, the Outlaws had two great drummers, David Dix and and Monty, Monty Yoho, ama amazing. Um, Thirty Eight Special also had two great drummers. Of course, the Almonds, J Mo and Butch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I. I, I I was definitely influenced by all those guys by way of seeing them live, you know. I'm always fascinated because, uh, you know, in, in here in Nashville, we have people moving here from all over the place. So the influences uh, definitely affect that stuff. I'm curious to know about your first touring experience. I know you went out with uh, Jonathan Butler um, yeah. and kind of wondering how that experience changed maybe everything for you. Um, yeah. In a, in a way that either said to you, uh, you know, you told yourself, I want more of this or, yeah. okay, this is good. This part is good. This part is bad. You know, I mean, like, what was that? Can you tell us about that experience? And Yeah, no, th thank you. Um, well, let me back up a little bit, if I could, without being sure. too, too long winded. Prior to working with Jonathan, I was working with... Um, like, I, I guess if you've ever heard of the jazz explosion circuit, I don't think you're old enough, but there used to be a circuit uh, called the jazz explosion, which were which were like um, shows that would would tour around. And it would be uh, one night would be Stanley Clark, um, Bobby Humphrey, uh, so and so and so and so and Al Jarreau. And then the next night it would be Noel Pointer, Lonnie Liston Smith, Tom Brown. And so on. And so it was just kind of a conglomerate of of uh jazz mus jazz uh oriented musicians where they would oh they the the premise of the tour was that they'd always have the same rhythm section right so the the rhythm section was a core and and uh and they would go and support these acts and the promote i guess it was the same promoter but i mean i guess so my point is is that i i ended up playing working with working with the same rhythm section that worked with uh, this circuit of, of musicians. And my circuit was the jazz violinist, Noel Pointer, uh, Lonnie Liston Smith, the, the keyboard player who played with Miles Davis wow. and Tom Brown, the, the jazz trumpet player. Mm. And, um, and I did a bunch of dates with them and it were, were, they, they weren't like formal, formal tours. I would call them fly dates. We'd fly to do, you know, four dates in DC for, you know, three days and then fly out to Denver to do three more dates and, and then, and then come home and so on. Um, and it was by way of Noel that I was recommended to, to Jonathan Butler. Okay. And that was his first tour in the U S uh, supporting Whitney Houston on like one of her biggest tours. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So to answer your question, that was, that was an, it was an eye opener. It was, um, it was intimidating. It was my first experience playing in front of huge audiences. Um, and as an opening act, uh, I, I learned a lot. Uh, you know, you play a 30 minute set while, while, while people are finding their seats, yeah. uh, which is essentially it. You get, you get crummy sound, you get, you, your gear gets set up like right at the edge of the stage. You got, you, you know, we're all crowded together. Um, and uh, we would get sound checks like 10 minutes before the door opened, oh. basically. 
you know. And yeah, what but, year was this and what was the tech like? This was actually, actually 1986. Yeah. 1986, yeah. Um, but with with all of that said, I mean, uh, we, we were playing great. We were playing our asses off. John, Jonathan is probably, I don't know. I, I, I mean, maybe George Benson is is like Jonathan's right there with George Benson in terms of playing, in terms of guitar playing, like Jonathan is a real guitar player mm -hmm. and a real jazz guitar player. And, um, and in terms of singing and songwriting, John, there's really, um, uh, I can only think of George Benson as being kind of up there with Jonathan. I'm, I'm sure there are others. Don't oh, nobody crucifies me for not mentioning them, but, um, but the tech, yeah, the tech was, um, you know, you would get like a little, you would get like a little wedge for your, for your monitor. That was basically it. Yeah. And not, not to, not to disparage anybody. I mean, but, but because we were the openers, we got basically the, the dregs of everything. You know, our, our front of house guy only got to use like, you know, a third of the console. Um, like I said, we, we would literally have a sound check 10, 10 minutes before the opening, you know, you know, before, before doors open and we were playing along to uh, sequence tracks at that time. So that was, yeah, speaking of techs, speaking of tech uh, elements, that was probably the first time that I ever had to, you know, perform to like recorded tracks or perform along with recorded tracks. And primarily they were background vocals, okay. background vocals, and maybe a second or third keyboard part. So it wasn't like full you know, production of recorded tracks. These I were see. these were supplemental tracks, I'd say. Sure, sure. I, I mean, did you, would you put headphones on during the songs? That had no, it? no, yeah. guess what? Yeah, th yeah, there were no headphones, no in-ears, nothing. It was, you would pray that you could hear the track and the click and or the count off in, in the wedge. Yeah. And then I would conduct the band in. So uh, that we had, we definitely had some mishaps and some train wrecks because of <laughs> just because of the lack of preparedness and so on, you know. I mean, but that's kind of what, what what you did. Was there a click going into your wedge? To yes, yeah, you yeah, had okay. you had a click. You had, yeah, I, I I don't remember exactly, but let's say there was a click with like a two measure intro, you know, and Jonathan would keep, signal me when he's done talking or done done introducing the song, and then uh, the last floor four clicks, I would I would count the band in, and then that's it, you know. After that, kind of like see you at the end. Hope there's no train train wrecks, sort of thing. Yeah, that stuff's amazing. Gosh, and what, yeah. what a learning experience for sure. It was it was really really um. I don't know, like as a drummer, I mean, it was, it, this was, this was, I mean, J Jonathan had great press at the time. He did um, great television shows. We got um, great exposure. Um, you know, I bought, I, I had to buy road cases for my drums. This was a huge deal for me. Like, oh my God, look at this. I have to buy, I, I bought like three huge road cases for all my drums. We had a, we had a crew where, Maybe maybe on the other gigs with Noel Pointer and Lonnie Lesson Smith, we had like one guy like help, helping us and so on. But it's basically a basically a DIY project. But this was like a full full blown, you know, full blown project, full blown production. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Was was there more touring after that? After you guys did the supporting 
role on that tour with Whitney? Yeah, so for me, no, because my role in that band was I was essentially filling in for uh, a, another drummer who couldn't make it, who I think at the time was playing for Luther Vandross. Oh, cool. It was a tour, tour, touring with Luther. And uh, and so, yeah, I knew I'd, I I'd, I knew it would be short, short term, but mm -hmm. um, it was an experience that I that that I jumped at. And I was happy to be recommended, you know, by those by those folks. So uh, and so Jonathan stayed touring for quite for quite a while. And they, and they did some really nice dates after that, after they got off the Whitney tour. But I'm, I'm trying to think what else. But, you know, I. I, I met Whitney Houston at the time when she was relatively young and she was very uh, magnanimous and, and friendly and her family was on the road with her. And um, it was just a great, it was, a, it was a great learning experience. I love it. I have some young friends that are getting touring offers, you know, in, in different levels, you know, sometimes playing supportive roles or, you know, doing a festival. They're like the first of like 15 bands or something, yeah. whatever. And, they're just not sure because there's there's work in town like for take Nashville for example there there's work in town to do there's maybe some little bit of session work for them at the time that they're doing and they're afraid to go out for the 2 month 6 week commitment whatever it is because they're afraid they're just going to come back to nothing cuz you start yeah. you know and Local scenes can be a good way to make a living depending on where you live and, and who you're working with. And so I, yeah. I get that those are tough decisions. And I uh, and, and I want to get into this at some point, but, you know, making those kinds of decisions based on where you're at in your career, uh, what 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 you want to accomplish and maybe your age, your station in life and different things like that. And so. A lot of times I'm like, have you ever toured before? Like, no. I'm like, well, you should go. This town yeah. ain't going nowhere. You come back, you know, it's whatever. Um, so everybody's different. I mean, there's there's been some things that, that uh, I was out on the road here and there a couple of years ago. And I was like, I'm missing too much at home. I'm missing too much at home, like the local scene. And so yeah. I left that and, and some, you know, guy like 20 years younger than me is now doing it. He's just loving mm -hmm. it moment of it yeah, of so i'm wondering like did you have to consider that when you took that tour and you're like oh, i'm gonna were you playing with the silos at the time actually yeah so yeah and you've, you've done some nice research thank you it's very <laughs> it's, it's nice um Ryan, that's, I, all I know. that's all i know about you that's it that's <laughs> well, no, well that's enough that's more than what a lot of people know um I started working with the silos shortly after so it, things happened very very quickly and um and, and talk about genre hopping, right? I went right. from like Lonnie Liston Smith to Jonathan to to the Silas, but uh, I didn't really consider. I I I had no. Um, I was working in town locally. I would say in the tri-state area, yeah. um, and my a lot of and I was really doing everything from like local theater to private parties and weddings and dan and dance gigs and cl and club dates. We we call them club dates here in the Northeast. Um, and I was doing a lot of subbing for other people. I was doing some recording sessions. Uh, and uh, the, for me, it was, this was, uh, you know, I had no, I had, I didn't really consider like what would be here. What would, what, what would I be coming back to? You know, what would be left when I come back or who am I giving dates away to? And 
it's it's true. Like I did, I have come back from certain things where like I lost my position, you know, um, okay. in, in like a certain situation. And um, one, one of them happened to be to, to the drummer, Sean Pelton, who's a, who's a great drummer, but I always say like, God damn it. If I had stayed in that band, I still would have been, I would have been the drummer. Sean Pelton wouldn't know, but he would have, I'm sure he would have been exactly where he is and regardless, but yeah, things, things have changed. Things change when you're out on the road. And um, I, I guess I was young enough and dumb enough not, not to really consider it. You know, I was like, that's it. I'm going bye-bye. And later, later on in my, in my touring life, as I really got, got into touring. Yeah. I, I was very firmly aware of coming back to no work at all. And so, you know, a couple of weeks before I would come back, I would start making phone calls from my hotel room. Wow. Okay. Yeah. To my, to my contacts, you know, that I'd be home on such, such a date, what's going on, how you doing? And I would really start to network my way back into things. And sometimes it would work and sometimes it wouldn't, you know. Uh, do you have so, other examples um, of, of that old school networking before, you know, before social media and stuff that maybe you yep. think is still really important and useful? Absolutely. So before social media and actually, so think of this, this was before cell phone. You know, I used to have to sit in my hotel room and make and make outgoing calls to people in my network back back home and so on. Um, yeah, you, you you know, you'd have to go if you lived in New York, you'd have to go to Bleecker Street and see all your friends play. You know, mm -hmm. you go go to you'd have to go go to clubs. There was um, there was another club on the Upper West Side called McKell's. You'd have to go to McKell's and whether or not you knew anybody playing. If you if you were at McKell's watching some watching watching a show i was uh, i'd be sure to, to know you know 10 people there like yeah. at the bar yeah so there were definitely places where you you would go and and you would network and and uh i don't know why i'm thinking this but i also i also had a studio my practice studio and rehearsal studio was in a building that we that we call the music building on 8th avenue between 38th and 39th street those of you from New York will know exactly where that is. And that's just south of the Port Authority bus terminal, which is not the most desirable part of town at the time. And uh, but in a way, that was networking as well. Like every that was just a building like a in, in industrial building that had nothing but every floor had maybe three or four studios. Mm. So you just by being in the in the proximity of that building, uh, waiting at the elevator, uh, telling people you're going back to the music building. That was kind of your home base. There were so many musicians coming in and out rehearsing. Uh, you'd meet people, you'd pass by people in the hallway. So yeah, you had to maintain a physical presence. Right. Right. I, and that, that remains the same uh, now. And it's, it's interesting because we can post all day long, but if somebody sees you in person and passes you by, whatever, then they're like, I need a drummer. Oh, you know who I saw the other day and boom, there you Absolutely. are. Absolutely. Yeah, I you know what? I in hindsight, I wasn't the best networker. I mean, I'm sure I was good enough to kind of get get where I got, but um, you know, I I I think of situations where, you know, um, you know, I could have been a little more social or realized um maybe what I'm trying to say is maybe I I under I undervalued the I undervalued the process of networking and what it would do for me in the future, right? Networking pays off kind of like 
a year down the road or maybe a week down the road. But now networking is important to to just show your interest in in the community right now and right right in the present. And it's not really about like what you're going to get out of it in here and now. Sure, sure, sure. So, yeah, it's really it, people sense that honesty too. They see that like, man, what are you doing here? Oh, man, I, 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 can I sit in? Are you? Uh, uh, do you need somebody? But it's like, man, I'm. I have tonight off, and uh, I knew you were playing, and uh, I want to hang. Can I grab you? I a think beer? that that's, and that and that's a great point, and that's way more meaningful as to go see your buddy play, you know, in his band or her band. Uh, they're playing at uh, you know the nine thirty set and. Don't don't ask to be on the guest list. Pay your pay your fee to get in. Buy your drink at the bar, and then listen to the whole set and talk to them after. It means so much to them that 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 you came. You know, yeah. So, um, I don't know what youngsters do now because there is so much social media and everybody. It just seems that it's I I, I don't know if it's the way to go. Or I'm sure Nashville has a place that has places where music, musicians can network. Yeah, there's different pockets and different circles for sure. Um, you know, a lot of them intersect, but there are different communities. But uh, I think that when it comes down to it, uh, that remains the same. That has not changed. You can post all day long, but if you go out and see people, um, I mean, that's what's worked for me. Uh, I It's the posting I was talking. I, I had a chance to have um, coffee with a couple great players yesterday and we were just sitting around just just hanging and and you know the, one of the more experienced session players that's been in town for you know almost 30 or 30 plus years was kind of holding court and my buddy and i were just sitting there just listening to his stories and yeah. stuff like that and i um, love that and I, I I got up and I thought to I thought for a second I'm like like nice to get a picture of these guys with me and do a selfie and I'm like no nah, I'm not feeling it yeah. I, I'm not feeling yeah. it. I, it I don't I don't give a shit I'm not here I'm not flexing for anybody I need this conversation um, but we I'm I'm off I I forget what my point of of that was but if anything I'm, I've got a new point and it's and it's just just soaking that up and just kind of being Absolutely. there and with, with, with a certain amount of honest intention, if you yeah. will. No, you I know. think um, you got to go with your gut and if it doesn't feel right, then don't do it. Right. I mean, cause this is, we, we work in a, we work and we work in a business that we live in. We live in this environment and uh, which is unique. I mean, that's sort of a, a track for another topic uh, tra mm. trajectory, but um you know, I mean, so so there's so we do have a lot invested. So I don't, I don't know if every moment's appropriate to uh, to post, you know, to have a picture, to document it, and right. So some 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 moments are more sacred, and it's just better to have the conversation and the personal memory of of the experience, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But I do have a workaround. If if you or anyone else who's listening is interested in the workaround. The best workaround is to have your wife nearby because if <laughs> my, my my wife will always pick pick up her phone and say, why don't you guys get together? I'll, I'll take a picture. I'll take a picture of you guys. And so who's going to turn down my wife? Like yeah, if, yeah. if right I suggest cue, it. Right on yeah. cue. 
if I if if I suggest it, it seems weird. It seems cring, cringeworthy. But if I, my wife is around, she knows exactly what to do, and she does it on her own. Trust me. And so and so uh, she'll uh, she'll kind of make it make it all happen. So that's that's way more or, organic. Here's another here's another inside baseball tip. Uh, when your wife's with you and you're at a party and like, hey, listen, there's this guy there, and I cannot remember his exactly. name. Exactly. Uh, listen, when we go up and I say hello to him, introduce yourself, mm-hmm. and he will say his name, and he'll say, uh, "Hi, I'm Liz," and "Oh, hi, I'm Jim." Liz, nice to meet you. Yeah, Jim and I go way back. Way back. Yep. Yeah. No, that's that is that is a great. But it's funny how it's funny how couples work work, work off each other because we we're, we're constantly doing that. Like, what's this guy's name again? He's standing right right behind me. I can't I can't recall his name. So it's good it's good to work work off each other like that. That's amazing. Did you work with Freddie Johnson before yes. They Might Be Giants? Okay, because I think uh, yeah that 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 was the connection to They Might Be Giants, was it not? Yes. Yeah. 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 Yes. So, uh, talk about networking talk about in a scene. I mean, I guess, I mean, I was, I was part of a scene. I lived, I, at the time I was living in, uh, uh, in Jersey city, New Jersey, which is right on the Hudson river. Jersey city is a, is not a small town by, by any means. It's a, it's like a 35 square mile Mm. city with a few hundred thousand people in it, I think. And, but you're you're looking right over at the at uh, you know lower Manhattan. You can see all of New York City. There's transportation underground, uh, basically subway trains. We call it a path train, and uh, that's that's where I kind of made my made my home. And that I was in striking distance of New York. But unbeknownst to me, there's there was a whole scene in Hoboken, New Jersey, which is the which is the next town up from New Jersey, uh, up from Jersey City. And uh, Hoboken had recording studios. It had, you know, musicians who couldn't afford Manhattan were moving into Hoboken. I mean, it, there was a nice, it was, there, was a, there was a nice lifestyle to be had in Hoboken and Jersey City at the time. It ha- it ended up that the silos were living in Hoboken. Okay. And also, um, there was a there was a very very busy studio called Water Music in in Hoboken where where I en- ended up doing a lot of sessions, and. It was by way of the silos that I got recommended to Freedy, Freedy, Freedy Johnson, and um, and I ended up recording with Freedy and doing tours with him, and that was a that was a much different experience, let's say, from the Jonathan Butler experience, but a ton of fun, a ton, a ton of fun, like really, really good tours, uh, um, for really good music. If if you've if you're not familiar, any listener is not familiar with Freddie's music. Freddie is, you know, kind of the quintessential Americana so, uh, singer songwriter. Uh, yeah. He he has very very um, image producing l- lyrics. I mean, he's a, just just a, just a great songwriter. Um, but he's not afraid to rock, which is what I really like about about Freddie. He's not he's not afraid to play rock and roll guitar. And he's not afraid to just play in a rock band. And um, so, yeah, it was from Freedy, you know, and then uh, Freedy at the time changed managers. And it ended up that that Freedy's new manager was the manager of They Might Be Giants. And then that's how I I came to They Might Be Giants. So it's kind of like the. 
when I was in school, when I was in college, one of my professors had a Freedy Johnson poster. And we're talking 93, mm-hmm. 93, 94. I know yeah. you played on the 92 yeah. record, which, yeah. by the way, the snare sound on the song Wheels. Holy oh, yeah. shit, man. Uh, thank you. Yeah. That is super. I'm like, I, I, it just stops me in my tracks. I'm like, that's, that's a that's a Rogers Dynasonic snare drum. Uh, what's what? Uh, uh, oh, uh, metal. I'm yeah, a metal. It's a chrome. I don't think I still have. I hope I still have it. I'd have to go look in my closet. But <laughs> no, that um, and and thank you for noticing that because I'm I'm very very happy with that drum sound. Um, yeah. and we worked hard on the drum sounds, even though it's not really a drumistic sort of record. But we worked hard on the drum sounds, and we we worked very hard on the snare drum sounds. I think the mix has drums all over it, man. Like in a in a really nice way, not not in a like a oh it's yeah, it's a Foo Fighters record, of course, a drum exactly, or a Rush record or something like that, which is which I love is great. But um, I do a lot of uh, lo- most of my recording experience is Americana stuff, yeah, um, and and I really do enjoy it. And some of my favorite songwriters and favorite people are uh, in that genre. And um, so I'm always kind of do- tuning in to who has worked in that, you know, in that genre, whatever, and, and, and how things were produced. And I mean, I granted this is a, this was a while ago um, and, you know, sounds and tones have changed. And as far as uh, the trends are concerned, but um, as a drummer, I'm like, yeah, this scratches a lot of. This is uh, scratches a lot of itches here. Uh, yeah, so no, thank you, thank you so much. An- another snare drum I used um, on that, and I don't have it anymore because I sold it. Was uh, a Radio King snare mm-hmm. drum that I had since I was a kid, and that it just sounded great. Um, if anybody's inclined who's listening to the podcast, it's it's I it, I I used that snare drum on the first two songs of Can You Fly. The, that it's the same Freddie Johnson record that you were referring yeah, to. No, um, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so thank you. Yeah, we, we worked hard on those drums. What's interesting about that album is the producers and the engineer at the time were all fans of muting the cymbals with um, like like hard, like mutes, like with like, like sizable portions of T-shirts, cut up T-shirts, just like over the cymbals. And I completely thought it was this was gonna kibosh like everything, but when you listen back to it, it they sound amazing. It it it, it really it really kind of like helps the uh, and I've since used it. I've kind of like put it in my back pocket as like a trick, you know, was yeah. like draping 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 sort of a, a a huge rag over the post in your in your hi hat and letting it fall on your on your top symbol. And just letting letting that whole thing sort of like uh, die down a bit is you you think it's going to mess up your recording, but it doesn't at all. It makes it more articulate, I think. No, it's really interesting because especially uh, we talk about this. We've have talked about this a lot is uh, when you're recording in the studio, not overplaying the cymbals. And you hear that, uh, not implying that you are inexperienced, but a lot of inexperienced players go into the studio and they bring their live uh, chops, their, their, their ears about performing live 
in the studio and it's bashing and it's overplaying the cymbals and uh, I still do it. I mean, I have to be conscientious of it. And I have cymbals that I use here in my studio or in other people's studio. And I have separate symbols for live, you know, yeah. and sometimes I might mix them, but I have to be very conscientious of the decay of certain things. Hi-hats. I have a, I have a, a pair of, um, I've fallen in love with these recently to record, um, these really old peisty, what are they, 505? I mean, they're like, they say made in West Germany. Oh wow! They're so old, and the top symbol was broken. And a Love friend, that. Of mine, you know, he had gave me the whole set, and I was using them as a like just practice symbols. And I just tried it out, and I'm like, oh my god, this records really. It's not going to work live, and I don't want to wear yeah. that. I don't want to break them any further. But gosh, they record nicely. So you have to be conscientious of how the microphone is picking things up, not only the instrument itself, but how you approach it, and certainly all these tricks. It's like, man. Why not? We we've got Absolutely. big snare drum stuff. We were on drums. We're muting stuff. We're using big fat snare drum things. Sorry, th I know those guys, so I keep saying it. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, uh, I've done that. I've taken um, uh, not we're, we're like rings, like uh, you know that you put on a snare drum. Yeah, uh, put it on a ride cymbal. Put it on a yeah. crash. Yeah. You know that kind of stuff. And uh, people are like, what well, are you doing? Speaking of all this, I, I'm looking behind you and I see that your your crash symbol's broken. Your crash symbol's cut out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that was I've I I I love that. I I I used to play broken uh a broken ride crash symbol for I mean actually it may even it's definitely on Can You Fly. That was my favorite symbol and I was just hoping that it would never die and one day it just died. It's it just the whole thing like blew, blew apart, you know. I bought a used 20, 20 21 inch uh, heavy minor crash and uh, I cracked it and I cut the crack out, you know, like a, mm -hmm. like a and then uh, I, I used it at home and I put some gaff on it and then I started using it as a ride symbol. And now it's it's like one of my go to ride symbols. Yeah. I mean, Jesus, man, they're they're symbols, you know, just use them. And there were there were no crashes or rides back in the day. People just played them. Yeah. No, you make you make some very good points. I mean, I think um, it's definitely well, if you were to look at my setup now, I have tape on all, on all my symbols. Right. Right. Right over here. Diff varying, like I have painter's tape on one. I have gaffer's tape on another. I like to tape the underside of my ride symbol a lot uh, near, near the bell. Uh, I do like to drape like uh, a rag over my hi-hat, um, but also that um, we've really gotten into this. I mean, drumming in many regards has evolved into this like symbol heavy instrument, which is maybe in my opinion, just not a great road to go down because symbols have to be used orchestrally i guess like we we have to we have to think of them as you know for certain punctuations or color and not and not to you know you know not to literally ride all the time so you know so well that's I'm, that's I'm, a very good point yeah and there's only so much room in the uh if you will uh sonic sandbox and when somebody's engineering and trying to find space for that guitar, that vocal, and you're stepping all over it with it, then you've got to be real. You've got to be really conscientious of that um, 
For sure. I and 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 there's also a lot of attention to capturing the whole drums with overheads, with yeah. a room mic, different things like that. And if your cymbals are the first thing that it hits and you're overplaying them, then you're missing out on the rest of the drums. And without going too much on a tangent, let's say this one quick thing. I, was, I saw this guy on YouTube and he was giving all his pointers about, he had like five points on how to record drums. And every single one, in my opinion, every single one of them was wrong. <laughs> it just yeah. blew my mind. First of all, make sure you have brand new drum heads on all your drums. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that. Yeah. no way, yeah. are you kidding me? Yeah. Look, I mean, look, look, I'm just thinking of like these amazing session players are like, hey, this is the original head I've had. Exactly, on the, the calfskin head or whatever, yeah. Right, right. And, uh, and then make sure you overheads the cymbals are nice and loud and you want those overheads to catch the cymbals i'm like no 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 man what are you doing what are you doing i totally i i, I i'm i'm always at odds with my room mics and mm -hmm. i'm i'm constantly i i really enjoy a mix without overheads or my room same or my room mics and um i either don't miss the cymbals or i always feel like ah, oh, there's enough cymbals in there you know but when i'm collaborating and someone's paying for a track I, I i i i give them everything you know so i i figure i may as it's not this isn't my call so i give them i yeah. i give them all of that but stuff but yeah no old, old heads are great you know sometimes the older the head the better it just gets gets really dug into the you know shell and onto the rim and it sounds great and which which brings me to another point which is that i i'm not always tuning my drums if the drums sound good i kind of leave them right i mean and then and then of course like yeah there, if if you haven't played a drum for a while or you're just noticed that your drums have gone out of whack of course i'll tune them but i'm not i don't obsess with like uh you know taking a key to my drums before a session or if it sounds good it sounds good i don't know if this ever happens to you but I have these snare drums that like, man, I don't know what I did to this, but it sounds really good. And I just use it until it just kind of falls out. Doesn't sound good. Yeah. Doesn't sound good. And I'm like, I, I, I should, I know there's some trick to this, but I haven't figured it out. And then I, uh, let me just get a different one. And I'm like, oh, this one sounds good. And then it becomes yeah. my. my <laughs> I'm in, well, I'm in right now. I'm in a, this kind of love hate relationship with my snare drum because I, have it this like it's i guess it's like a pearl black blue black beauty yeah 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 eight inch snare drum and mm. i i wood shell and i am i can't get this i can't get the doink out of it there's always like a a little doink no matter how i'm tuning it but i think i'm just gonna have to like just keep putting more tape on it that's it i mean that, that's gonna be the answer because other drums i've had just always sound freaking good like I have a pearl free floating snare drum that just sounds good no matter what. Yeah. Or um I have several um superphonics that I never touch at all and they sound great. And they have yeah. like toilet paper and duct tape on them from like 10 years ago. The same stuff and it sounds freaking great, you know. That's amazing. Uh on on uh on John Henry, do you remember what you were playing on there because I I feel like the some of that snare stuff in, is is also pretty popping there yeah. on that record similar to what i heard on freedy johnson no thank thank you um i was i've always pretty i've played and uh, and i'll and i'll tell this story quickly maybe maybe at the end but i've always played the same yamaha recording custom drum set that i got in 1985 
when Yamaha was just just coming into the scene, like it might even be their first series of yeah of of recording custom drum. I don't I don't even know if they have a line called recording custom anymore, but these were called recording custom drums. Yeah, I think they do. And um, they're they're that battleship gray look, and um, and <clears throat> I've always swapped out snare drums. So on John Henry, I I'm, I'm playing those drums, and we used just uh, we probably we rented about thirty snare drums for that session. Okay, you know for for those sessions because those sessions were done at, at a destination like a mountainous recording studio up in the Catskills, New York. It's no longer there, but it was. Was it Bear Studios? It, yeah, it was Bear, Bearsville Studios. Yeah, Bearsville Studio. Okay, yeah, is, that the, is that the one? Do you remember when Neil Peart did a did a video like he, early nineties? Rush he, was up there a lot, and as a matter of fact, my story my my story was that the day we loaded out, and our gear lo loaded out, a truck pulled up, and um. And I was like, gee, who's who's that coming in? You know, I I asked the assistant. He said, Well, it's it's not Rush, it's Neil Pert. Neil Pert's gonna spend the next month here. So this is a secret that maybe it's not a secret to people, but this is where I heard it from. So I'm just imparting the knowledge that I heard. But yeah. uh the word was is that Neil Pert was gonna spend the next four weeks recutting all of his drums by himself wow. in the studio. And I was shocked and it's because of course you think like all this stuff happens organically, you know, or maybe then you, I did, you know, and then I realized, uh, what, how, what, what an ingenious idea, right? If, if you have the money, right. To just, yeah. you're going to go back and you're going to, if you like certain passes or certain phrases, you keep them. But if, so apparently that's, that's what he was about to do at, at Bearsville. Especially at that time, I, I, I'm such a Russian nerd. Um, that, that stuff just it kills me. Just like to think about how that that has evolved and and all that all that stuff. And and um, yeah, yeah. And and the magic that happened in the studio when when they were younger. But then as as things got, you know, as that changed. But man, that's that's crazy. That's really yeah. interesting. That's um, the first. Or, I thought what like what a what a what a pro move, right? That was definitely definitely a pro move. Yeah. Well, uh, tell me about what it was like uh you know touring and then you were you were the you were the first session drummer for they might be giants um yeah. and 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 one of the first uh touring drummers and um you know we talked about you know how, how the gig came about you know through through management and stuff like that but what was maybe unique about that gig some unique demands from your drumming that you hadn't yeah. experienced up to that point Great question. I'll say well, off the top of my head, something. Uh, there were many things that were. First of all, that their music is very, very unique. You know, it yeah. it, 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 it it genre hops, uh, and those guys are very into, you know, uh, music of all genres. Therefore, they they have a great knowledge base. So, talking about talking through ideas and so and and so forth you know you have to you have to be able to reference you know music through the pop music through the ages or different songwriters and you know from the residents to the beach boys you know so um that was a a, a, a like a pleasurable to it was a it was a demand but it was it was a great learning learning experience for me you know um 
Another demand would be that it was even even though we we would go out with you know um other musicians in the band that band was really just a core of four of four of us so it was me tony mamoni on bass who was from the band pier ubu and um and and had just worked with bob mold and um and then and then the two johns so it was basically the two johns and me and tony and so there was there were social aspects where i mean um in many regards, the two Johns were, and if your listeners are not familiar, one gentleman is named John Flansburg and the other is named John Linnell. So we would just call them the Johns. But there's there's elements to to uh, working with those guys where, you know, they were very private human beings. And then there were other times where we were very, very social. So you kind of knew how to, you you learned, I, I had to learn how to, you know, switch things on and off. And when, when were good times to, you know, uh, let everybody have their space personally and, and, and kind of get in the mix with everybody. Um, there were also, you know, musically there, there, th- those guys were very, very open, um, to suggestions, to, um, to, to my ideas, which was really nice. I mean, they, they, they definitely cared about what, what I thought, you know, and to the point where I, where, where I knew that, you know, me and Tony should bring stuff to the table, you know, rhythm section ideas. And, uh, we co-wrote some songs with them even. So there were, um, there were the demands, you know, of, of being like in a really good band where, where you have musicians who, who are working at a very, very, very high level, you know, and then there were also times where John Linnell, who's, I mean, one of the great musical geniuses of our time, I would say, um, would would announce that he has a batch of new songs to present to the band. And he'd he'd hand me demos where I knew that the fact that he's handing me demos meant that I'd have to learn pretty much the way that he programmed his drums. You know, there, I, I just knew that that's the way that Linnell works. If he's going to bring in a song organically, we're going to jam. But if he's like, yeah, you, Brian, you should definitely check out these four songs. He'd hand me something. And then I'd, okay, I got to learn it the way Linnell, because he was accustomed to hearing it that way. Sure. So um, one example, for instance, was uh, a song on John Henry called The End of the Tour. Uh, that had programmed drums on it. So. I, I was mimicking the orchestration and arrangement of program drums. Also on that album, on the John Henry album, um, Subliminal, which is the first song on the, on, on the album, has two drum, two drum tracks. And so I, I was the one who brought that. And, and I'll tell you, and complete and full disclosure, what inspired me for the two drum tracks was not only the fact that I felt it would need it and add and add a different dimension was that, um, you know, the song middle of the road. No, I'm sorry. It's um song by the pretenders, Martin, Martin chambers. Um, it's not middle of the road. Uh, I'm going to think of the name in a second. I'll look it up. Yeah. It's, but it's uh, one with two drum, two drum set. Yeah. It's Martin chambers, double doubles, but it's a genius. It's a genius. Um, oh, damn! Now, now it's going to stick. Now, now it's going to really, really bother me. It's a, it's a genius double drum track presentation, which is another thing I really enjoy. Like hearing, hearing double. A lot of what we hear on pop records and stuff I have double, double drum tracks, um, including the hi hat of Lowdown, Jeff Picaro, 
um, on the Boss Gags song, Jeff Beccaro overdubs the hi-hat, which sounds like a great groove. But when you listen to it, you're like, that hi-hat is definitely overdubbed. So, um, so oh, okay. it, it adds a great that. dimension to it. But I'm sure Jeff Beccaro could play. I mean, he's playing great anyway, but he, I'm sure he brought that to the table. But yeah, Subliminal was kind of my my idea. Like, I wanted to do this double drum thing. And and they kind of rolled, they they went with it and they and they really liked it. And so we, you know, we played around, around with that in the studio a bunch. We we were first started talking. We were talking about uh, we were talking about they might be giants and and the live performance and and the improvisational elements of it. And one of the things that's pretty unique is, uh, you know, one of the Johns starts or uh, you know directing the band and, yeah, and, yeah. and and doing something. Could you tell tell us about that and uh, kind of where, how that started and or maybe explain what that what that was? That's that's so cool. That's a and and thank you. That's a great question. And yes, I can because I'm probably one of the few people around that's that that was there and present when when it all went down. But we would we would we would tour and and um and on the, on on the you know if you've ever seen They Might Be Giants, John Flansberg and John Linnell have tremendous senses of humor. I mean, oh, they, good Lord, yes. They they really they really um it's just a great it's a cathartic moment. They want to have fun and we would laugh like like have so much fun playing like be, you know belly laugh sort of moments. Um and a lot of things would come about like at the end of a song when we would do like a huge hold, you know, before a button and then Linnell would start playing a riff so the song wouldn't end. We'd end up jamming it to something and then that would become, you know, morph into something else and so on and so on and so forth. So, and as a matter of fact, that, that song, AKA driver on that album was, was a product of this jam idea where we where Flansburg was just singing at the end of a song, you know, come to, we were in St. Louis. So he was, imploring the audience to to come see us the, the next night in Chicago, which is not a which is not a close drive. And um he was saying, come on, it's just a full day's drive away. And he was uh you know it was just it was just funny in the moment, but and so we got a song out of it. But um that song Spy uh yeah what was was a, a primarily a Flansburg song. I mean the way that they would work they would they would they co-wrote songs, but each of them would bring their own ideas to the to the table. And I think I'm pretty sure that Flansburg knew right away that he wanted this improvisational kookiness to go on at the end of this song. And, and before we, we recorded it, we we played it on tour a lot, and we had several ideas, and some of them were really really funny, which which I think are funny. I don't know if your listeners would think that they're funny, but. Um, during this improvisational moment, we we once decided that we would not play our instruments, and instead of switching to somebody else's instrument, that we'd all pick up a trombone. And I don't know how this came, but <laughs> just just so weird. And um, you know, this is a moment where you're touring with a band, and when you know one of the bosses, you know, like John Flansburg, would point to the tour manager and say, and say, Mike, we need four, five trombones here in an hour, so wherever we were in Florida, you know, okay. Mandolin streaks in the middle of Austin. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. We get, we'd get that sort of stuff too. But, um, so, so we would just 
try stuff like this. And it was, it was a lot of fun and we, we would just Im, Im, improvise. And um, then that song sort of became more formulaic where that improv part was Linnell conducting the band and where if he'd give you a certain cue, you would be playing an, an improvisational riff that everybody else would kind of go off on and maybe more of a Captain Beefheart, you know, mm-hmm. um, element there where, where it's just kookiness, uh, dis- dissonant music going on at the same time is not really jazzy, but um, John Zorn kind of work, 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 exactly, exactly, yeah, Lower East Side Knitting Factory sort of yeah, stuff going yeah, on, yeah, yeah. and um, and that's that that was one of the pleasures of working with those guys because they they encourage that sort of behavior, you know, and um, I, th- I think a lot of artists, songwriters, singers are they're afraid to do it or maybe they feel like they're not at a point in their career to do something like that and they might be giants have always encouraged musicians to do stuff like that because they really don't give a shit you know they're like we're doing and and they're and at that point in their career they were very successful anyway so they were just like f it we're just going to do this i don't i don't care what people think you know it's it's very entertaining i i, I played with a band for many years and the singer was really good at doing stuff, and, and there were elements of that where we were improvising and just riffing off a situation. We played like a, a state fair, and he was. We were on stage, and you, you're playing those state fairs where it's like in a in the middle of an old town, and you're you're looking down the street, and there's like really shitty food vendors on either side. Oh, I've been like, to many of them. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and he's like, dude, I'm 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 going to eat something after this gig, so he starts making up a song about the French fry lady. So the song, oh, nice, oh French fry lady, and so, you know, kick it and just be like, I just start a groove, and the bass player would look over at the guitar player and say, you know, uh, key a C, and and they'd start grooving, and then and then he'd start improvising, and those band members who I'm, we don't work together anymore, but it's like so every once in a while we'll get together. It's like, remember that song, French fry lady? Remember that song, Ferris wheel or? crocodile dance we did for those kids and you know and whatever and i was like the thing about it was of course we're having a good laugh about it but is man it really helped us develop an ear for playing with each other when we were playing the songs that we knew it was great like we just your ears were huge and like man we were making music together um, even if there were other production elements that were more confining, whether it was tracks or a click or different things like that, we still, the, that, that thing. And, and, um, I really value that. So, I mean, you know, humor and all that goofiness aside, I feel like there is a really good element, uh, in making a band really work well together and your ears just huge. And I'm sure that they valued, uh, that was a, probably a big skill set that that those guys needed in their band from you uh, to be able to hang not only stylistically, yeah. you know, variety, but also just have big ears and and have fun. Yeah, it, 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 good, really, really good, good point. I mean, because if you think about it, um, I mean, that's that. In my opinion, that would be a way like a bit the band of today. You know, if you're getting into the music music business, if you want to write songs, you you're you should be jamming them with your bandmates. You know, where everybody's contributing. You know, e- equally and kind of for me, formulating your your ideas that way, uh, which is one thought. But also that um, in terms of they might be giants. Yeah, it's like a lot of stuff we did 
was in front of, you know, 1800 people mm-hmm. and, you know, took, took a certain, it, it, there, there wasn't like a much discussion or like four rehearsals. It was just like tonight, let's just try this. And then yeah. you would do it. So it took, it definitely took a cer- certain amount of balls, you know, yeah. Yeah. to kind of go, go up and do it and not, and not fold under the, under the pressure, you know? Uh, one thing I, I don't know, can we talk about kind of the, the post life after, after Absolutely. the band kind of, I, I mean, you, you mentioned seeing them recently, I'm assuming your relationship is good with those guys and, yes. uh, um, and what was that? Mm-hmm. What was the, what was the, uh, reason for you, you leaving the, the or afterwards or, or what was that? No, that's, um, I left that band from primarily for personal reasons, you know, I was, I was going through personal stuff in my life and this was after, I mean, we spent maybe three years touring like from clubs to concerts to supporting acts. We, we did, we really did everything. We, we did so much. It was, it was, and I was very, very proud of the work I, I did with those guys. And um, it was a great, great experience but it was very, very hard work. I mean, it was, Oh yeah. It, it was, it was, yeah. Yes. We had a road crew and we had a tour manager and we had nice hotels and we had, um, <laughs> nice traveling accommodations and, um, you know, catered food at gigs and so on and so forth. And I had a great, I had great drum techs, you know, didn't have to lift, lift fingers and so on. But still, it was just it was hard to be away from home. It was hard to maintain any sort of personal life. Um, at that point in my career, I definitely felt that everything else that I had worked on was totally gone. You know, all session work that I was doing in New York with other people, because I had really like given everything to this other band. You know, they 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 might be giants, and even to the <clears throat> even down to the point where I would make some of those net- networking phone calls, and people would say like, "Oh, come on, like." Yeah, you, I know you're going to be home, but you guys will just go back out on tour again, and you're you 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 don't want to work my my little gig, or you don't want to play on my song. I'll be like, yes, I do, you know. So, yeah. um, it was it was difficult, and I realized that unless you know, if you're in a band like that, unless you are uh, receiving uh, you know different income streams primarily by way of publishing and by way of merchandising, you're you're really you know you're if the, the 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 salary you're earning is really the, the best you're going to get, you know, I mean, it's not going to get any better than that. You're, you're, you're not going to be all of a sudden become an investor in the business like the, like the two, you know, other gentlemen were. And um, I think that, 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 that was it for me. I, I, I realized as painful as it is, as life-changing as this is going to be, I think I have to leave this band and, and uh, it was tough. I left the band and, you know, I, I didn't work for a while. I, I went through personal like hell, you know, uh, as a result of, you know, my own doing, I, I doubted myself about what I did and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then now years later, looking, looking back upon it, it was probably, you know, one of the best things I ever did. You know, I have a fit, you know, another, in, in other words, I have a, I have, have a beautiful family now. I have three kids that I get to uh, I get to enjoy watching them grow up. I I'm not traveling as much, and you know I I feel I feel so much better about about my circumstance. Yeah. Um, so yeah, post 
post they might be giants was uh, uh you know years of great transition but i never i never really stopped playing drums of uh, as, as a matter of fact in very very short I'll, I'll make this as quick as quick as possible i left they might be giants and went through sort of a bottleneck of personal and professional difficulty for maybe two years or so and um at the uh, around the year 2000 i became a public school teacher by way of a fast track program and i i, I had degrees in in um you know i had college degrees but not anything that would certify me in education this particular program you know paid for my second master's degree where i became a certified teacher and, and in new york state you have to be a certified teacher in order to teach in, in a public school and um and I thought I was just, I, I got into the world of education. I thought I was just going to dip in, dip out until things got better. And I ended up loving it. I, I love being a teacher. And I've been, I've been a public school teacher since 2001. So going on 23 years now. That's you awesome. Know? So yeah. I'm very grateful for my career in public school, um, in public education, I should say. And I enjoy every moment. And um if it weren't for for all that hell I went through, I would I never would be here, right? Right. So um, that's and then ironically, uh, as the second I became a teacher, I I I I got so busy as a session drummer in New York City. Uh, it's it's almost like one of those things. Like the second I didn't care about it anymore, yeah. I was not desperate. I didn't make any of those calls. I became I, I became desirable to people and. One network that I got into was subbing on Broadway here here in New yeah. York. I had never done Broadway shows. And um, in the year 2000, I started subbing on Rent, which at that point would, had been open for a, maybe, I don't know, like six years or so. Uh, I subbed on Rent for a seven-year run. And and simultaneously, I would do other shows. You know, that that led to other shows. So uh, my... my, um, my my life some days would be I would I would go to my school teaching gig and then I would take a train back into the city and then sub on shows, sometimes eight shows a week, you know. So I I played Rent. I played Hairspray. I played Little Shop of Horrors when it was on Broadway. I worked on a show with Bob Dylan and, Twi and Twilight Tharp. That was a Broadway show. I worked on um, – most recently I worked on the show Waitress with Sarah Bareilles. Oh, love her. Yeah, yeah she's great. And that's a funny story about about how I met her. I met her and talking about networking and bumping into people. I yeah. met her in a rehearsal studio where I was rehearsing with Freddie Johnston okay. to work on some of his new songs. And um, we were waiting for, you know, Studio A to open up and we were outside. We were chatting. We were drinking our coffee and the studio door opens and all these unknown faces walk out and we say hi, you know, like a polite hello. And um it, it ends up that I knew the bass player and the drummer who were who were rehearsing with her. They walked out of the rehearsal studio, and after we made our connections again, oh my god, I haven't seen you in years, and we we connected. The first words out of Lee's mouth were what he he brought Sarah over and he said he should sub on your show. So he point pointing to me. Yeah, so yeah. and I was like, what show is this? I had no idea who Sarah Bareilles was. Okay. And uh, she said, well, I work on the show Waitress. It's been open on Broadway for a little bit. Yeah, you should come down. And then a couple of nights later, I came down to see the show and I worked on Waitress for three years. And some sometimes, because Rich was busy, 
I, I mean, he's always been busy, but for there was a good maybe part of a year where he was on tour with little Steven, Steve Van Zandt of oh. uh, Bruce, Bruce Springsteen's band. And so I, I became the, like, I, I owned the chair at Waitress, I would say, you know, for, for huge ch- chunks of time. So I would be a school teacher during the day and then responsible for the chair at a Broadway show at night. So, and this, this went on for about, for well over 20, 23 years or so. Oh my gosh! I mean, I, I, do you find it difficult to kind of like maintain the the schedule? And when do you sleep? When do you see? Your- <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, schedule is pretty good. I mean, Broadway shows uh, have a nice. I mean, a seven a seven o'clock start has a six thirty call, and then uh, it's usually over by like nine thirty. I could yeah, be on okay. a ten. I could be on a ten ten train back home. Home at you know ten ten forty five. So it's not, you know, it's it's not like I'm uh, like I'm on the couch with my kids watching TV, but but I do get to see my family enough. Um, and it's um, I, I don't know if you, if a lot of a lot of listeners realize this about Broadway shows, but you're basically yes, there is reading involved, and yes, it's a tremendous amount of pressure, especially for for waitress. The band the band was on stage the entire show in kind of a diner scenario, so you were part of the diner scene and also rent you you were on stage for the entire show so there were certain stresses and demands of being on stage but um once you learn the show and you're and you get the approval of the musical director which every person every musician has to get approved um then after that you kind of you're you, you know you live and sleep the show you're not necessarily you're, you're you're looking at the music but you're not reading the hits and the eighth notes and you're you know this just just as well as anybody else does. Yeah, my my co-host Zach has has been out for just a little over a year with "Ain't Too Proud to Beg." Oh yeah, great great show. It is a he kills it, and um, but it's been interesting. We've been um, for all our listeners, we're doing a a monthly video chat on our Patreon page where he and I catch up with each other. We talk about. Uh, the interviews that we did that month, um, we just did one. We just started this year, so we did one for January. Uh, you know, general bullshitting, uh, in, yeah. but also that's awesome. Um, I'm I'm kind of off the road, and I transitioned off the road, and he transitioned on the road. Yeah, and uh, and kind of the uh, pros and cons of all that, and the um, the mental and the physical wear and tear. Uh, but that's so, I mean, that's, that's a touring thing, you know. But I'm sure he can play that show without really lo- looking at the book right. at this at this point. You know, um, there would be and I'd, I'd be interested to hear his thoughts on this, but there'd be times where I wouldn't. I would use either the house book at Waitress or or show or or, or maybe not at all, or I wouldn't put a certain a certain sequence on the music stand where that's where I that's where I I'd end up making more of my mistakes. So just the. Just having the music there as your crutch, even though you're really not reading it, was the thing that got me over. So I found that for me, I'd always have to be look, looking at something. One of the things you talked about in leaving They Might Be Giants is kind of inspires me to, to kind of go down this path is how your priorities shift throughout the course of your career. Yeah. And, you know, I mentioned that, you know, Zach is out on the road. I have kind of come off the road. Um and what what gigs we take, what gigs we pursue, 
Um, we play these scenarios in our head. And we're like, oh, so-and-so's got this gig. Yeah, I don't think I would want to do that. Maybe mm-hmm. 20 years ago, I, I did. I, I totally would love to do that. But now that just sounds awful to me. Or I'm just not as interested in that. Or, yeah, these people are doing something that I think is going to be would be a great fit for me it would scratch this itch and it would you know challenge me musically at this stage of my life so i know it's a lot that i just said but i'm wondering now that you're you know at this point in your life you've got the teaching thing going on you've got this family that you're you know raising but you're still you're you're putting out music still you're putting out new music you're you're mm-hmm. reconnecting with uh, with other people and and doing things and but i mean so you have to make these calculated decisions on what you do and what you don't do could you speak to speak to that and kind of how that's changed yeah. in your life no that's that's a great it's a great point i feel like um i i can probably make it quick maybe quicker than maybe than the question quick, quick. Quick enough, you know, <laughs> no, very, very, very well said. Um, but I feel like, uh, yes, when, when you're, when, when I was young, I wanted to take everything. I wanted to play every gig. This Did was, this was the 110% of my being. This was, this was, I was consumed by the business, by, by playing. I, 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 I was hoping that point a would get me to point B and so on and so forth. Um, and at this point, yeah, I, I realized that had I not made the, the the conscious choice of like kind of slowing down and had, had I not been open to other avenues of life, you know, um, because at the time, maybe I, I could have seen the world of education as demeaning to me, like, Oh, I'm not going to become a teacher. I'm going to, yeah. I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a rock drummer. Or I'm a session drummer. Um, but what was the best thing for me? I wouldn't, I wouldn't give this up for anything. So if, if I, if I talk about priorities, yeah, it's going to be about time. It's going to be about compensation. It's going to be about my, my energy and, and what takes me out of, you know, my, my normal family routine. And for instance, um, I enjoy remote recording in my, in my studio, for instance, when songwriters send me songs and stuff, that's, it's, and it doesn't take me out of my element. It doesn't require a heck of a lot of time. I've just gotten to the point where I realized that I, or I've just decided, I guess, in the last couple of years that if there's a gig to be had, I, I will not move my drums. And it's not, it's, it's not me being a prima donna. It's that I'm older now and I'm not schlepping drums anywhere. So if I play with a band, it's, yeah. and, and I do play with a dad band, you know, in, in town where we, you know, cover band. Yeah. We're called Herd Immunity, by the way. Yeah, Herd yeah, Immunity. Yeah. And um, and uh, we enjoy it. And uh, but we usually play places that have a backline. So yeah. there's 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 ways to still enjoy. And there's actually another drummer in the band. My my buddy, Chris, who's a great drummer and uh he is okay with bringing the drums like so so that's sometimes how we get how how we get around it so really that's 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 kind of it i mean it's kind of picking and choosing i feel like if i were to go on tour and i and i i can't say i know this will never happen of course in the back of my mind i i hope this that's you know good things still happen for me if i were to go on tour it would have to be perfect timing for instance like right after you know, my last day of school in the spring, 
you know, perfect time for summer vacation or like with like a legacy artist yeah. that can pay me so much money that me taking a leave of absence or something is not, you know, and do I think that any of those situations will happen? Mm, yeah, you know, probably doubtful, but that's, that's probably what it, what it would take, you know? Sure. This is what people need to know about the challenges and, and, and be able to take a step back and look at life and a, a larger view and, and prioritize so that your relationships that you have, the family and, and all these other things, like over the, the course of your life, that's, that's so much more important. No, I totally get it. I mean, um, it's, it really comes down to, and I hope I've always been this person where I've, I've always been okay with having a beer at the, you know, going down to the pub and having a beer. And I've always had friends who are not in the music business. And, um, I've always been okay with musicians who don't want to talk about music, you know, who are huge. I know, I know more musicians who are bigger sports fans, you know, <laughs> than actual. Into, Huey into Lewis from the news record. That yeah, one? exactly. <laughs> no, <laughs> actually, no, sports. <laughs> yeah, sports. I love, I love that album, by the way. I know me too. Um, so I think that that's what it takes. Like uh, I, 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 I scroll internet and TikTok. I'm sorry. I scroll Instagram and TikTok reels and, and so on. And sometimes I think like some of these, some of these players are very, very intensive. They're very talented, but I, but I hope I, do, I, I can only hope that their life is nicely well-rounded and, you know, and that they're not, anyway, it's not, not really my concern, but I'm, I'm, you know, fr from my own perspective, I, I, I always want to be that, that person that has other interests and, uh, and is okay with music for what it can offer me and, uh, and, and where it can't, well then, you know, we've got other things. Yeah. No, I, I, I appreciate that you, you t speaking to that. And, uh, I, I would say, you know, without, without music, my interest in music, it would not have led me to the school I went to where I, where I met my wife, where, yeah. In, in, and it has proceeded to, to the life that I, I so appreciate and enjoy. Uh, last question. Do you have any cigar recommendations? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So you did do your research. Zach and I are cigar. Not not as much these days. Um, but uh, but yeah. And, and, and some of our listeners are, too. Uh, well, that's great. And that is one of my other interests. And if you're hearing me cough, it's because I'm getting over cold. It's not because I'm smoking cigars, but, um, <laughs> I enjoy, well, first of all, I, I do like, you know, I go back and forth. I like anything that's Connecticut blend. I, uh, I do like, so, so I don't, I don't know how it is by you, but we have almost every gas station in the suburbs of New York city has like a little humidor with a great beer fridge. And we've got some of the best beers and uh, some some of the some great cigars. But there's one particular, I, I believe it's a Nicaraguan cigar. It's called My Father's Cigar. That's the name of the that's the name of the company, My Father's Cigar. Yes, I think I've heard. And that. it's actually very very good. It's probably one of my favorite. I like. I go back and forth about you know my how much time you can devote for a smoke. But I, I do like, you know, I like, I like big bankers. I like, I like smoking big cigars. I mean, you know, sitting around and lounging a cigar that takes an hour to smoke is very, very pleasurable. You know, when, when you're bullshitting with people, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. How about, um, how about you? What do you guys like? 
I prefer just a shorter cigar. I, I don't think my tolerance is, is as high, but then usually if I'm in a spot, um, again, mentioning uh, a listener, a uh, recent transplant from, from the West Coast, uh, Damon Hope has moved to Nashville, and we've met for cigars, and we're about due for another one. And um, I, I'm uh, into the smaller for sure because I think I, I pair it with a, a, a good scotch. Yeah. You know, so I have to be careful what I do, but, um, yeah, I don't have any, so part of it is, uh, of interest, but part of it is, uh, out of, the question is, is for my own education. Now I think, um, for you, if you can find a tin of, of Macanudos, they're great. They come in a little, um, rectangular tin. They're not, they're not cigarellos. They're not small, super small ones. Okay. They're decent. They're decent size, but they're, they're maybe like a 15 minute smoke instead of, like a huge investment, you know? So I'll send you some screenshots of, oh, of these cigars, great. but, but the Macanudos are really good. Cohibas are really good. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's, you got, you, you, you know, you have to have a good cigar purveyor there in Nashville. We do. You know? We yeah. do. And it's, it's gotten better. And, and there's a place, uh, actually close to just south of downtown and every time i go in there you you see musicians again go circling back to what we originally talked about the the hang and you're gonna see somebody you know well and, that's the kind of hang i need to be in then right just talk talk about cigars drink a little bit of scotch and then maybe, um I mean, maybe music will come up maybe it doesn't it maybe maybe it doesn't maybe it doesn't yeah maybe Man, this has been an absolute pleasure pleasure to speak with you, meet you, meet you. Um, I, I texted uh, my son. Uh, I was like, "Man, I'm talking to one of the drummers. With they might be giants." <laughs> but he's like, he's probably, like, "Oh yeah, cool." You know, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> whatever. They're just not impressed anymore. <laughs> well, thank, thank you, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be, uh, to be featured on your podcast, and, I, and I wish you guys all the best. Thank you, man. Well, keep in touch with us. Thanks to Paul Meeker for making the connection. I hope Paul is still Thanks, listening, Paul. even uh, for for not following through at this time. But uh, I'm 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 glad you reached back out and again remind us that there's just so many, so many drummers and so many uh, people doing things, of, and everyone has a unique story and perspective and things that we can learn from. And and man, you're you, you're no exception. It's just. It's just been great to, to talk to you and, and hear all the things that you're done and, and what you're doing now and how it's fed your soul and your life. So it's, it's, it's inspirational, man. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And, and again, thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Cool. Brian, thank you so much for doing this. Thank, thank you, Matt. Totally right. appreciate it. All right. Take care. Have, Have a good, good night. Bye-bye. So there you have it. My conversation with Brian Doherty. We thank Brian so much for taking some time to speak to me. And uh, you know, Brian's just a perfect example of somebody that has done some amazing things and yet has found a way to prioritize family and other types of work and interests along with drumming. And as he spoke about in kind of shifting his focus and the work that he does, drumming never went away. If anything, the universe said, hey, you need to keep playing, and so there just continues to be opportunities for him to this day in recording and performing, and it's it's an inspiration for sure. So that was really fun. Stay tuned next week where Zach Albetta will be the host of this podcast. But for now, thank you so much for listening, and stay safe. I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.